0: If you're new to Harvest, my name is Michael Vernon. I serve as one of the elders here. As you know, our senior pastor is on vacation. And we are continuing our, sermon, our elder-led sermon series this morning, and it's called The Journey Through the Letter of James. Today, we'll be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. You know, this is a difficult task for me. Um, I labor. Over the idea of preaching. First Timothy talks about elders and overseers being a, having the ability to teach. As I prepared, I admit I have struggled. However, last Sunday morning. Through the worship set. And through my brother Paul illustrating how unwise my selfish thinking was. Has been, I come with you to you this morning with a new perspective. You see, delivering this message this morning is not about me. And I was struggling with the presentation more than the message. But receiving this message is all about me. And as I preach this morning, I'm preaching more to me. See, preaching from the Word of God is communicating the truths of God He has written for us in His Word. And as the messenger, the message applies to me, just as it does all of its readers. Another struggle that I have had is I have listened to just about every YouTube sermon on this passage. You know, and I have learned from great preachers, their interpretations on these verses, great men like uh, Ryan Jackson and Paul Roberts and Tony Caffey, who have preached to us through the book of James. And I know I'm going to learn more from George Bennett and Don Miller as they come and preach. But men like John Piper and John MacArthur, Warren Wiersbe, and plus... Other numerous sermons on the internet, and one of these struggles is that each one of these sermons comes away with a different slant. Just for instance, John MacArthur will say this passage speaks to believers as a test of their true salvation, where Warren Wiersbe will communicate spiritual maturity or discipleship. And after all the study and the prayer, the leading Holy Spirit I believe in many ways they are all correct. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10, as of all of James, gives instruction and explanation on how to live for Christ and why we fail. James begins this fourth chapter of this epistle with the question, where do wars and fights come from? Have you ever stopped to ponder and think about that? You know I have so more, more so recently, with the recent news of the riots and lawlessness, the conflicts, the quarrels all around us, even heated discussions amongst us as believers has caused to think me more of my role within the conflict. In my research for this message, I came across this statistical data regarding national and international wars and points of their origins. It goes something like this. A conflict between two cities in France almost a thousand years ago started as a conflict over a water bucket. One Chinese emperor went to war because of a broken teapot. A war broke out between Sweden and Poland in 1654 because the copious error involving the number of times the word et cetera was listening following one of the king's names. One of the many conflicts between England and France originated with the spilling of a single glass of water. Since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. During this period, there has been 14,531 large and small wars in which 3,640,000,000 people have been killed. And this statistic is dated by at least 10 years. As we come to James four, we see more at stake than international conflict. James was addressing yet another test, a profession of a person's profession of faith, And this time he was interested in the way a person's faith was lived out with regard to personal desires. He stressed that a person could not please God at the same time satisfy himself. That should all sound familiar to us. Maybe it's because it's the same thing Jesus said in the sixth chapter of Matthew. Listen to these words. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The only way for a person to resolve this conflict, James teaches, is to be completely devoted to God and maintain a humble, repentant relationship. So this morning, I hope to show you six lessons from these, these verses, and we will see a contrast between the war that was produced in our sinful flesh and the peace that can only be found in a right relationship with God. And while the outward appearance of these scriptures may seem a little complex... The message is clear we must make a choice so if you would let's examine these verses together if you would stand with me one more time as I read James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 what causes quarrels what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel; you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God are you just are you or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Almighty God, I just, one more time, want to just pause and allow you to take control of our thoughts and help us in our thinking. Father, I want. Your words this morning to penetrate my life. Teach me. God, I want to be able to communicate your words in such a way that helps others to live out these truths. And as we go through this discipleship, this process of maturity is the process of testing our faith in Jesus Christ, God. Help us. May these truths just land in a place in our heart this morning that will help us to see ways that is not pleasing to you and repent, turn, and ask you for forgiveness and help as we continue to to live out our lives to bring you honor and glory. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's get into it. Our first lesson War is produced by our sinful passions. In lesson one, we're going to see war originates in our passions. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? James states plainly the source of internal conflict is passions. The word passions is also interpreted pleasures. John MacArthur defines it as the gratification of sensual, natural, fleshly desires. John goes on to say in the New Testament, this word is always used as a negative, an ungodly sense. Hedonism, which comes from the Greek word hedon, which is a translated Greek word here in James, is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. So to be clear, we're not talking about being passionate about something, right? I love to water ski so much so that I am willing last Thursday morning to get up at 430 and meet Alan White and other men at the lake at sunrise. We do this so we can experience the lake at its best. Many times, the lake is like glass. The thrill, the excitement, the fun, it's invigorating. Not to say anything about a camaraderie and relationships that are being built. You could say that I am passionate for this sport. And we've heard it said that people are passionate about life. This was meant as a compliment, and we can understand why. Our history books are filled with men and women who have discovered and who have invented as a result of their passions. These are good things. There can be virtue in adventurous living. However, this is not what James meant when he said that wars and fights are as a result of passions within us. The kind of passions that James was talking about was passions leading to self gratification These passions are driven by the question, what's going to make me feel good? What's in it for me? Personally, I have learned that that's the hard way. That's not a good idea. It's kind of like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. You think of all the food that tastes great and that would satisfy your hunger, and as a result, you end up buying things you don't need. But the matter is far greater, greater. It's far more serious. The church can be a place of self-gratification. My favorite color is blue. I'm comfortable with the thermostat at 68. I like music loud. But suppose your favorite color is not blue. It's red. God forbid. <laughs> you like the thermostat at 74, not 68. You like to sing softly. You have to agree that we have some differences. Could it possibly uh, could we possibly have some conflict over these things? The answer obviously is yes. And it ought not to be true in the church. But so many of our conflicts of the body of Christ originate in fleshly desires and our selfish determination to have things our way. We'd like to see the church kept the way we like it and we'll fight to keep it that way. I wonder if our passions and our pleasures could be so great as to keep the Holy Spirit from our fellowship? Could it be so that our own struggle to assert ourselves might be the very thing that quenches the Holy Spirit sometimes? And I believe that is exactly what James is suggesting in verse 1, chapter 4. We are sinful people. We are driven by our sinful desires that are ever-struggling. To make themselves known in our lives. However, there is still more about this war. Which brings us to our second lesson this morning. Our first lesson we learned that in verse 1, our war originates in our passions. Our, lesson, our second lesson, our passions carry us down a sinful path. We see this in verses 2 and 3. James describes a vicious cycle of desires and actions all with no satisfaction he describes sin as a sort of bottomless pit always looking for more but never able to satisfy so let's look at these verses a little closer he begins by saying you desire and do not have have you ever noticed that no matter how much you have it's never enough you know, we're like that as human beings and i've found this illustration of a king who was having trouble sleeping and he he was told that if he could wear the shirt of a truly satisfied man for just one night, it would cure his insomnia. So his officials searched the kingdom and they found a truly satisfied man. There was only one problem. He had no shirt. As long as we have something, there will always be something else to want. And this is, not, is this not the reason that Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden so easily? They had everything except the right to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was such an easy step to take that one thing that God had excluded from them, yet we say that they had everything else. Why was it such a big deal? Simply because they did not have it. It's not what they have that presents the problem. It's what they do not have that presents the problem. The next words James uses here, so you murder, you, you covet, and you cannot obtain. People will commit murder to fulfill their, flesh, their fleshly desires, their selfish passions. We cannot escape the senseless death of children being caught in recent attacks in our communities. And as, as shocked by this as we all are, there's no sure shortage for murderers. People from all walks of life who have taken the life of another for what often seems unimportant. Suppose we were to ask any of these murderers if they felt satisfied after committing their crimes. How many would tell us that they were? Few, I doubt, if any, uh, would tell us that their crimes, crimes brought true satisfaction. And that is exactly the nature of sin. There is a momentary pleasure, but even then even that satisfaction is gone. And the need for the pleasure returns all over again. And the last part of this verse says, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You know, I've witnessed that some people enjoy a good fight, and I've been known to enjoy a good debate myself, even when I had no clue what I was debating. (laughs) There's a story of a general who, having defeated his last enemy, wept at the thought of having no more conquests. Some people are driven by the need for conflict. Let's say today there is no place for that kind of struggling here in the church. Are there battles to be fought? We're instructed to fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12. We are instructed to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6. Attacks against the cause of Christ. Battles against those who deny the scripture and its claims. Wars against the world and its influences. But the battle should never be among brothers and sisters in Christ. who are seeking to advance the gospel and reach the lost with the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. What James is addressing is the issue of brothers and sisters in Christ who are filled with passions of self. We see in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This verse references early passages in the Gospels in which Jesus told his disciples that whatever they ask in ask god in his name they would receive it james tells these believers that the things that they ask for are not the things that they need they are driven more for their selfish desires than obedience to god we've all experienced that sometimes we're too late too late for a deadline at work so what do we do we pray for grace We fail to study for a test and we pray for superhuman recall. We pull in a parking lot when the store is about ready to close and we pray for grace from the storekeeper. In every situation, our motives are at best questionable. We're trying to avoid the circumstances of our own failures. And in fact, we deserve them. How often when we are praying for miracles, we pray wrongly. As James asked, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Most of the time when we do this, it's really just to satisfy our personal desires and has nothing to do with the will of God. It's kind of like praying for a cheese pizza to fall out of the sky while laying in a hammock in your backyard. It's exactly that flippant. And selfish, and our prayers can be that way. And that's exactly why they go unanswered. So we've seen the truth of the war that originates in our passions, and that our passions carry us down sinful paths. Now James targets spiritual adultery in Lesson 3. Sinful passions is equivalent to spiritual adultery, which keeps us from a right relationship with God. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, I have been accused of a few things in my life, and I can't remember being or recalling being accused of spiritual adultery. Let's look at these words in James chapter 4. He paints a very vivid picture of a person having an affair Throughout the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as his wife. And you will recall that in the book of Hosea, God used the adulterous activities of the prophet's wife to paint a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. In the same way, the church is called the bride of Christ. In the New Testament, in this example, God accuses the believers of spiritual unfaithfulness by our passions in the world. This verse is full of images of infidelity. The words adulterers, adulteresses, we're familiar with them and they need little explanation. However, friendship and enmity, on the other hand, would give a little attention to. The word friendship means phileo or love, love for the world, and you can envision what that looks like. It's a lifestyle that is self-serving. The way we spend our time, our money, the people we hang around with, places that we go are all part of our lifestyle and evidence of where our love for the world lies. And the second word, enmity, means hostility. It refers to a a selfless, godless value system and actions of fallen mankind. The goal of the world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction and every other form of self-serving, all of which admit amounts to hostility toward God. John MacArthur puts it this way, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This verse suggests more than just wanting a desire or a wish to be fulfilled. It carries a stronger idea of choosing one thing over another. James says plainly, you cannot be a friend of the world and be in love with God. We are called as believers to live lives of holiness before God. It affects what we buy, where we go, what we do, and how we live. We, men and women, should be serious about and careful about every relationship that we have. You know, no one should have ever heard of the name. Monica Lewinsky, a few years ago, but we did. No one in the Bible should have heard the name Bathsheba, but we did. And we've heard many pastors use this illustration. You can't wallow with hogs and expect to be clean. Spiritual adultery is the most, one of the most difficult and painful sins to admit. The truth is it affects every one of us to some extent. But what are we to do? We know what causes wars within us, within the church, and amongst us. How do we have peace? How do we experience no more war? Which leads us to our fourth lesson, and we start see the contrast from war to peace. Peace is found by a right relationship with God, and we see in lesson four, peace begins with the spirit's desire. Verse 5, Are you do, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? As I went through many translations, this verse is translated in a number of ways, and I really appreciate the New Living Translation, which states, Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the Spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him powerful powerful words the holy spirit is the only one with truly pure passions because he longs after us it is the kind of longing that the loving father had as he watched for the return of the prodigal it's the kind of desire that tugs at us when we are seeking god's will the holy spirit draws us to the father and as he who can overcome our selfish longings with his own pure desire. Let's look what the scripture says about the spirit. Romans 8.26 says, Like the spirit, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for for all the saints. The Spirit knows our hearts and knows our needs. It is He who can bring peace to our lives when we allow Him to have His way with us. You know, as I get older, um, I feel like I misplace things more often. Maybe it just seems that way. But every now and then I will ask Shelley if she has seen something of mine. And when I know I'm the one who misplaced it, which is ninety nine percent of the time, I have to figure out where uh, and remember where I had it last. It's wherever you left it. Surely enough, as I retrace my steps, I find the missing object. I wonder how often we forget of the Holy Spirit and dwelling in us. We go off running to accomplish something great for God, only to find our efforts are powerless, they're forgettable. God reminds us that the Holy Spirit is right where we left him. He will go with us in the ways that God intended us and no farther. He will empower and encourage us in the plans of God. If only we let him. The Bible said God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful. So we first looked at the war that originates with us in lessons one through three. We're now learning the peace that produced by our right relationship. In lesson four, we just saw that peace begins with the spirit's desire. Lesson five. Humility is our first step to receiving God's grace. Let's look at verse 6. But he gives grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Although this statement is best made in verse 10, I want to begin dressing it here in verse, in the context of verse uh, 6. You know, we're all too quick to talk about Grace. It's something we as, familiar, as believers are familiar with. Uh, we can't explain it, but we know how it feels and what it does for us. We love to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Grace has a powerful effect in our lives. We've heard it defined as God's riches at God, Christ's expense. Unmerited favor. Love without measure. But what about this stipulation on grace is there anything we can do to merit God's grace to read verse 6 you might think that our attitudes come into play how can something undeserved be gained in such a way the answer lies in the context of Scripture God will not give it to people who don't think they need it what those folks need to realize however as we all stand in need of God's grace. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Back in Isaiah's day, the prophets were talking about the needs for God's grace. Isaiah 64.6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. If for no other reason than this we stand in need of grace, but how do we get it? This is where James answers the question. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we come before God, denying any merits we might have, acknowledging our inadequacy, his sufficiency, then we're able to receive grace. There's nothing that we can do to receive it. We can't dress grace up. We can't make it more attractive than it already is. There's no human being can improve upon it. All we can simply do is take it and say thank you. This is where humility is important. As Americans, we have experienced many good things in our life. We are self-sufficient, and nothing gives me more satisfaction than doing things myself. I recently put in a microwave over our stove, and all through the instructions, it talked about this two-man lift. Guess what? (laughs) I did it myself. However, after installing the microwave, I needed to remove it again, and finish some electric back behind the stove. It was at the end of the day. I was tired. I went skiing that morning. And I tried to put the microwave back in place. And I couldn't do it. I was trying to figure out and engineer something to allow me to handle this microwave. I met. it was humbling to ask Shelley to help me. Only when I came to the river the realization I could not do it on my own. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. Whenever you and I are riding high on super self-sufficiency we should get ready. As believers we will experience humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Hebrews 12:6 For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. If we are followers of Jesus, then we can expect to be disciplined when we become filled with pride. That's where humility enters in. Which brings us to our final lesson this morning. Lesson six. Peace requires a right response. Verse seven through 10 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The last four verses in this section of James gives a list of imperatives for repentance. Biblical repentance comes basically in two parts. It's realizing the problem and turning away from it. It's the same thing as making a U-turn in a car or doing an about face in a military maneuver. There's the the realization that the direction that we're headed is compromising at best, deadly at worst. Then there's this evasive maneuver that simply doesn't carry us away from the problem, but moves us in the opposite direction. It's why Paul tells the Thessalonian believers, abstain from all appearances of evil. He's telling them to not even go near it. So let's consider these essentials James gives in his readers. Verse 7, submit yourselves there before to God. This is a military term, meaning to rank under. The term here indicates it's a voluntary action. No one can be saved without submitting themselves to God before we were saved we were under the lordship of satan now we are willingly now we willingly put our submission through faith under the lordship of jesus christ where we believers in christ once was an enemy of god and a slave of sin now we're the loyal subject of his lord and master john macarthur says that virtually by definition to submit to god your new Lord is to resist the devil, to stand against, to oppose. No middle ground. James says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Humble, submitted people are not easily tripped up. Draw near to God, verse 8, and he will draw near to you. The third command is to draw near an intimate fellowship and communion with the living, eternal, almighty God. Salvation involves submitting to God as Lord and Savior. Submission is found in our disciplines. If you want to come close to someone, it is important to do two things. Spend time with them and communicate with them. I cannot say enough about the need for personal time of prayer and Bible reading every day. If I want to know what someone is really like, I can read their autobiography and listen to their podcasts. But in order to really know who they are, You need to drive to their place and sit down and talk with them. It's the same way with God. Only through prayer and reading of the scriptures can we come to know God in a personal way. James says that if we come close to God, he will come close to us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What James was saying is that our hands represent our physical bodies. He was saying that the key part of repentance is the cleansing of physical sins. Sins that affect the body, these include sexual sins, gluttony, laziness, poor stewardship, anything that leads us astray physically, but he doesn't stop there. This is a call for those who have not trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to submit, to come to God, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the one who has paid your debt to sin. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This area affects our minds and ultimately our souls. The Bible tells us not to be anxious about anything, but uh, many of us do worry. The Bible tells us to to have sexual lust is as bad as committing adultery. The scriptures teach us that uncontrolled anger is a sin worthy of hell. And the list goes on. Jane tells us that just as we are cleansed with our physical impurities, we must also be cleansed with our minds. Verse 9, be wretched, mourn, and weep. He's reflecting here the essence of godly sorrow. Be wretched carries the idea of being broken as a result of sin and a broken relationship with God because of our sin. Along with becoming miserable, the repentant sinner is to mourn over his sin. And to weep is the outward demonstration of being broken of our sin. And sorrowful. The next two phrases build on the plea for genuine repentance. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How long has it been since you sensed the awful seriousness of your sins before God and were moved to tears by your shame? They tell us that our churches used to have mourners' benches for people who are dealing with their sins. Today we use small groups. Small groups is a biblical model of our early church, where believers living life together, bearing our burdens, our struggles, our joys, our failures, our victories, our sins, and holding each other accountable. James speaks directly here in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Church, we need the presence of God. We need the power of God that only God can give. We need his protection. We need his promises. But we also need to choose humility before God. We need to submit. We need to resist the devil. We need to draw near to him. Cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. We need to experience affliction and mourning and crying for our sins. When we come to repentance, we will experience the last part of verse 10. He will lift you up. Or he will exalt you. He will exalt you reminds me of a verse. My mother, who loved so dearly, died of MS. She was wheelchair-bound and unable to speak. She was only able to point to letters on a chart. Um. So she, she, could, she could think clearly, but she could not function. Her hands shook so bad that most of the time I couldn't figure out what she was saying. But this is a dear verse for her, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they, will wait, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When you and I are finished with our wars, done with our desires, loosed from our passions, when we are filled with godly sorrow, humbled in God's presence, submitted to God's power, then we can experience the hand of God as he exalts us. We can know the mind of God as he carries us on eagle's wings. We can experience the strength of God as he sustains us. He will will know, we will know him even as we are known. But it cannot begin until we acknowledge our problem and seek his solution. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for teaching me this morning. Thank you for just the conviction of sin. Father, thank you that uh, you continue and desire to work in us. Father, we ask that you just can do a greater work. Help us to find these things in our lives that are hindering our relationship with you. And may our love and our walk for Jesus Christ become stronger and greater, more intimate day by day. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen.